Well, we are back in 1 Corinthians this morning. If you have your copy of Scripture, go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 10 through 17. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 10 through 17. This is the second sermon in our series in the book of 1 Corinthians. And um, as we said last week, this was a church that was loaded with problems. And uh, that's good because we learn from how the apostles under inspiration of the Spirit deal with those problems because we also have problems because of sin. And so this book is going to be exceedingly beneficial, I believe, to the life of this church. If you weren't here last week, we looked briefly at how Paul introduced this uh, this letter and how he dealt with the problems. He didn't lead off um, by harping on them or coming down hard. He commended them. He told them what they were in Christ. He motivated them with grace and with the gospel. But now in this section, you're going to see that Paul waste no time in entering in and dealing systematically with each problem in this church, beginning with the issue of division. And so we're looking this morning at 1 Corinthians 1, and we're going to read together verses 10 to 17. And before we do, let's pray again and ask God's blessing that he would come with power, that he would be at work in us by spirit, and that we would be transformed this morning by his grace. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you are God who speaks, that In times past, you spoke to the fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, you have spoken to us by your Son, whom you have appointed heir of all things, and by whom also you have made the world, who is the brightness of your glory and the exact representation of your person. And our God, we pray that you would cause us to be transported in soul and in mind to the heavenly places where Christ is, that you would cause us to see the glory of your Son, that you would cause us to be caught up with and and consumed with a sight of the glorified Son of God. Father, we pray that your word would come with great power. You have told us that it is, it is like a fire and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. And if, our God, we pray if there be any here with hard hearts, indifferent hearts, unregenerate hearts, that your word would come and that it would come like a hammer and that it would break in pieces the hard and indifferent heart that is at enmity with you, and we pray, Father, that you would also remember those this morning who are like bruised reeds, that you would bear them up gently, Lord Jesus, that your word would accomplish all the purposes for which you send it. We bless you for the scriptures. We pray that you would bless the preaching and the hearing of it, for we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 10, there the apostle says, I appeal to you, brothers, By the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, that's Simon Peter, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one could say that you were baptized in my name. I I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Besides that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied. Of its power. This ends the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word to us this morning. 
Well, there is almost nothing so discouraging in this world, in this fallen world, as when we see Christians divided, when we see Christians bickering over things they ought not to be bickering over, when we see churches divided. There is a really sad account in church history. Uh, Ralph Erskine, he's one of the Erskine brothers, uh, 18th century in Scotland. One of the great theologians in the history of the church, Erskine Seminary, is named after Ralph and Ebenezer Erskine. And Ralph Erskine had a son-in-law named James Scott. And in the 19th century in Scotland, there was major division over how the church and the state were to work together. And you had groups, the burgers and the anti-burgers. Don't get hungry. But James Scott, Ralph Erskine's son-in-law, sided with the group that was pro-church and state and the state having a say over the church. And Ralph Erskine and his brother, I think rightly, took a stand against allowing the state to have any stay over the Church of Jesus Christ. And this fueled a great controversy, so much so that James Scott and the group that he had sided with ended up excommunicating his own father-in-law, his uncle, and all the seceder tradition, is what it's called. And it caused great division to the point that the two men, both faithful gospel ministers, were unreconciled, and on his deathbed, Ralph Erskine called for his, son, his son-in-law, James Scott, to be reconciled, and he would not come. And he died unreconciled. It's one of the saddest stories in church history, and yet it is actually very common. It's common on a church level. I heard a joke this week that really drove this home. A man's on a desert island. He's the only one there. He's a castaway. And finally, he comes to the point where he's going to get rescued, and a captain on the ship sees him, and he comes over. He brings the ship over. And he goes on the island to get this castaway, and there's three huts on the island. And the captain says to the man, how long have you been living here? And he tells him, and then he says, well, what are the three huts for if you're all alone on this island? And the man said, well, the first hut is where I live. The captain said, fair enough. That, that makes sense. And he said, well, what, what are the other huts? And he said, well, the, other, the second hut is my church. And the captain said, okay, that's good. That's, that's good that you build a church. And then he said... What's the third hut? He said, well, that's the church I used to go to. And the joke really drives home the mindset of so many people, so many people, in how selfish and how proud we are, how ready we are to divide. There are reasons for division. There are times to divide. Paul divided from false teachers. Paul said, if anybody preaches another Jesus, if anybody comes with other doctrine, if anybody preaches false gospels, if anybody comes, even if they're telling you about Jesus Christ and he is not the Jesus of the Bible, you are to have nothing to do with him. But the church of Corinth had the gospel, it had the truth, and it was divided. It was divided over pride. It was divided because these people were picking their pastor. They were picking their theologians. They were like 14-year-old girls at a Justin Bieber concert saying, I like this one, and I like this one, and I like this one. And Paul is saying, Paul is saying to them, listen, I appeal to you. Notice verse 10, I appeal to you. It is a strong urgency that the very first thing Paul deals with in the church The very first problem, and there are loads of problems in this church. There's sexual immorality. There's idolatry. There's all kinds of problems. The first thing Paul deals with is the issue of division. It's interesting to me. Years ago, I was talking to a group of young young people who were at a mission work, and I said to them, what is the number one thing God hates more than anything in the church? Now, in my mind, it was false teaching, I think rightly. And almost unanimously across the board, it was as if they knew what I was going to ask them. They all said division. 
I said, no, false teaching. They said, division. I said, no, false teaching. They said, division. We were divided (laughs) over the answer. Now, as I reflect back, it is both false teaching and it is division. It is false teaching that fuels division. It is intellectual pride that leads to division. And unity that Paul is calling for is unity in the truth because the truth of Jesus Christ always ought to produce the most blessed and wonderful unity the world has ever seen. It ought to produce such unity, such heartfelt affection, such oneness of mind and spirit, not on every single little doctrine, but in the gospel, in Jesus Christ crucified. It ought to produce a union that is inseparable. And so this morning we're going to see three things. First, we're going to see the call to unity in the church. And then we're going to see the cause of disunity in the church. And then we're going to see the cure for disunity in the church. The call for unity, the cause of disunity, and the cure of disunity. Well, notice when Paul opens this, he has transitioned in verse 9. He has just told the Corinthian Christians that they were called into the fellowship of God's Son, that they were called out of darkness. They were effectually called. They were drawn to Jesus. God had done everything for them. He had redeemed them sovereignly. He had brought them from darkness to light. He had called them into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And now they were divided. Those who had been called into fellowship with Jesus were dividing their fellowships. They had different meeting places and they weren't talking to each other. And they were, they were saying, I am of Paul and I am of Apollos and I, it was the great I of division. And notice that Paul appeals to them in verse 10, not just on his apostolic authority. This is very important. Paul doesn't say, I who am an apostle, you need to listen to what I say, though that's true. Because Paul was one of those that some were siding with saying, I am of Paul. And so notice what Paul does in the call to unity. He says there, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. In essence, Paul is saying this is what Jesus Christ wants. This is what the Lord Jesus wants. Jesus has a will. Jesus has a desire for his church. He wants things. You may not think about that, but Jesus in heaven wants things for you. He has a will and a desire. He reveals it in the scriptures. So often we detach the Bible from the living and reigning Christ as if this is not from his very heart and mind. This Bible is said to be the mind of Christ in 1 Corinthians 2. We have the mind of Christ, Paul says, because we have the scriptures. And the heart of Jesus is for unity. Jesus loves when his people are united. Remember that account where James and John are out with Jesus and they hear about some other people doing some miracles in the name of Jesus and they're like, hey, Jesus, they don't follow with us. And the Lord says to them, look, he who's not against us is on our side. He who gathers with us is for us. That is intrinsic. A desire to separate and to create a party spirit is intrinsic to our fallen nature. And Jesus' heart in straightening out a world that has been redeemed by his blood is that there would be unity, that there would be peace, that there would be a oneness. This is what he prayed in his high priestly prayer. He said, Father... I mean, think about this. Jesus prays a long prayer before he goes to the cross to do what the Father had planned in eternity. And in that prayer, that very important prayer, the majority of that, Jesus is saying, I pray that they would be one as we are one, I in them, you in me, that we may be one together, a oneness in Christ, in the Spirit. And so Paul is saying, I appeal to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree. Now notice, he doesn't say that all of you just get along. He doesn't say that all of you come in because there's one true church and you're a part of it. He doesn't appeal to the visible church. He says that all of you would agree. 
Now, let me say this. I think there is a tendency, even in our church, but definitely in the church in America, to pit moral error and theological truth against each other as if they don't come together, as if, okay, here's a problem down here. This is a problem over here. People are living wrong, and we just need to tell them how to fix it. We saw this last week. No, that's not what Paul does. Paul says, at the heart of this division and this call to unity at the heart of it is a call to agree in the truth, a call to have sound doctrine. Paul takes the smallest pastoral problems, I mean, a couple divided churches, a couple divided people, and he brings together the need for sound theology. And he says that you would be agreed, and notice what he says, that there would be no divisions among you, that you would be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Now, in the Greek, in verse 10, it's actually that you would all speak the same things. You would all be agreed that you would all speak the same things. The call is for them to say together in a unified way the common truths that they know, that they have been redeemed unto, that they have been entrusted with. That is what unites them, and that they would speak the same things. Now, I wonder if Paul is saying using that phraseology, speak the same things, because some were saying, I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. They were making confessions about who they followed and who they were like. And so the call here, the call is to union. The call is to unity. The call is to unity in the truth. Now, let me say this, a few things. Number one, this is not teaching against denominationalism. It's not. In an ideal world, no denominations. But I've never met a community church that is not like we're a community church. Ever. Never. I've never met a non-denominational church that doesn't say, we have denominated ourselves, we are a community church. That is a mistaken application of this, number one. I don't think denominations necessarily divide. I think there are a lot of denominations and a lot of people that denominate themselves, and it is schismatic, and it is sin, and it is wrong, and they do not love their brethren, and they want to be right, and they want to be righter than everybody else, and they want nothing to do with people and associate with people. But I think in this world, in a fallen world, because of our doctrinal differences, because issues like baptism and eschatology, your view of the end times, because those things are very debatable, I think I understand why we have denominations, and I don't think they necessarily divide. Number two, I don't think Paul is teaching that we have to have absolute uniformity in everything. I don't think that's what he's saying. I don't think he's saying you have to believe every doctrine precisely, exactly, down to the minutest detail as every other Christian. It's calling for unity, not uniformity. It would be nice if in the minutia of sound doctrine we could all agree that would be beautiful. Don't think Paul's calling us to that. Paul is calling them to be of one mind and to have the same judgment in the Lord and having to do with their relationship with Jesus Christ and one another. Notice, secondly, that Paul is going to explain to us in verse 11 the causes of disunity in the church. And we've already touched on this. It's been reported to me, he says, that there's quarreling among you, my brothers. Now, notice how Paul introduces even the disunity and the causes for disunity. He tells them that they are his brethren. Notice even twice in that little use of that phraseology, brothers, he is saying we are a family in Jesus. And I've been told from other brothers and sisters, those in Chloe's household, that there are divisions and contentions and jealousies. And Paul is going to say at the very base, at the very foundation of the problem of disunity in the kingdom of God is pride, personal 
pride. You know, pride is not something we get rid of when we've been converted. When I look at this letter, I say, these are people who have been converted. That division was a very real division. The healing of that division was very necessary. Pride doesn't just go away when you're converted. Jonathan Edwards has a great statement where he says that in the most gracious experience, there's a mixture of self-righteousness, fear, and all these other things that, in a sense, hurt the growth of the believer. There's that in your heart. I am so aware of this, that in our little congregation, I know tomorrow if Satan wanted to use one of you or me, and God let him, it would happen. I've seen churches that otherwise looked healthy one day, the next day, divided, all kinds of fighting. It was like Satan was let loose in the congregation. Because we have to be aware that foundational in our hearts is a sin problem of pride. We love to be right. We love to be right about not even being as right as other people. We're so subtle. We would even attack people who assert themselves as being right, and we would in our pride say, well, yeah, the problem with him is that he wants to be right all the time. We are so sinful. And Paul says, listen, it's so easy to slip into this. And what they had done was, in verse 12, they had picked their favorite apostle and their favorite teacher in the church. Paul was the apostle of the Gentiles, Peter to the Jews, Apollos, uh, Alexandrian Jew, very eloquent, probably one of the best preachers for giftedness in this church. And then there were even some who probably had been around and had probably met people who had seen Jesus personally and were saying, we're of Christ. And they were so ready to divide over the I am of, I am of, I am of, I am of. Now again, I want to say, I don't think that what Paul is saying is it's wrong for you to look at theologians in church history and say, I agree with Jonathan Edwards. I agree with John Calvin on this. I agree. That's fine. That's right. If they're right, if they're biblical, we should want to agree. But we ought not say, I am of, I am of, I am of, I am of this. I am of this style of music. Let me bring this home on a non practical doctrinal level. Do you know how many churches divide in our day over music preference? And I think fundamental to it is not that one party's right and one's wrong, it's that both parties are proud. I do. Both parties are proud, do not love each other, do not maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. And so Paul is is urging them and he's like pointing out to them the problem. Now, the problem was not also that they liked to listen to Paul or Peter or Apollos. It was not wrong for them to say, I love to listen to Apollos preach. Let me read to you what John Piper recently said. Uh, Piper said, God wants us to find good examples, to watch them, to be encouraged and inspired. Yes, it can be sinful and dangerous, and it can be wonderful. Anytime a preacher is a draw, two things happen. Now listen carefully. There is a carnal attraction to Apollos-like eloquence. He's reflecting on this passage. There's a carnal attraction, a fleshly attraction to Apollos-like eloquence or logic or turns of phrase or personality that people like. And they don't go through it. Listen carefully. Piper says they don't go through it. They like it. They stop there. They don't go through it. They don't go through it to God. They don't go through it to Jesus. They don't go through it to the Holy Spirit to be broken by him, to have their lives turned upside down. So that if the pastor died, they would have Jesus. And he would mean everything to them. No, they just stop with the preacher. That's carnal. That's the first thing Piper says. And then he says, but there are other people. A word lands for whatever reason that person meets Jesus. 
God condescends to make that sermon on that day a miracle. The sinner in the pulpit has miraculously been made the instrument of grace. Now, I think holding these things in balance is necessary for us as we come to this. There's a danger that we say, well, I really like listening to so-and-so because of how eloquent he is. I've caught myself saying that. There's a warning about this in the book of Ezekiel, actually. Ezekiel was a prophet in the Old Testament. Usually we think about them as, you know, the crazy guy on the street railing on everybody. But Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 33, God says to Ezekiel, he says, Son of man, my people come to you and they sit before you and they listen to you as if they were my people. And they say, oh, he plays well like someone that plays masterfully on an instrument, but they do not do what you say. They do not do what you say. I look at our conferences in North America, wonderful conferences, wonderful speakers. I think there are a lot of people in the PCA who listen to big-name preachers who say, oh, I love listening to him, but they do not do what he says. In churches, I go here because I just love listening to him, but they do not do what he says. And Paul is saying fundamental to these divisions was the surface adherence to this minister or that minister, to this theologian or that theologian. And then in verse 13, there were some that were so arrogant, they were like, well, yeah, we follow Christ. As if we don't need you, we follow Jesus. And notice what Paul does. Paul attacks the problem now. So thirdly, Paul attacks the problem and he says, is Christ divided? I love this. I love it. He's going to ask three questions, rhetorical questions. You're going to answer those all with a no. And it's going to put before the people the cure. What's the cure? What is the problem? What is the cure? Here's the cure. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? I love that. Paul's essentially saying, am I the Savior? Can I save your souls? Did I die at Calvary? Did I shed my blood to redeem you? Is Christ divided? Is Christ for these people over here and then some of them for these people over here? And then he says... Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Baptism was that mark of identification. They had been baptized into the name of Jesus, showing forth their union with Christ. And Paul's saying, listen, at the foundation of your problem is pride, a forgetting about what Jesus Christ has done in his death, in his resurrection, in his drawing you, in his giving you baptism. And then notice what Paul says at the end of this section in verse 17 He says, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of his power. What the Corinthians were doing was they were sermon tasting. They liked this one for his eloquence. They liked this one for his rhetoric. They liked a guy that could get up and argue one side and then turn around and argue against it to the people to show off how good he was, how logical, how skillful he was. And Paul says, listen, I checked that at the baggage claim and I came to you preaching the gospel. I preached Jesus Christ and him crucified. And that is what changed your life. The foolishness of preaching about a guy who got murdered on a cross is what changed your life and united you. The foolishness of a naked Jew who was crucified is what saved you and united you. And so Paul, Paul is saying here, the cure is to remember that. Um, I almost think it's foolish when I, I've gotten into discussions with ministers and seminarians over the years as to whether we should be preaching the gospel every sermon all the time, whether believers need it, whether the gospel is just for unbelievers, whether we need to be reminded of what Jesus did at Calvary. Because when I read the New Testament, every single page and every single issue is Paul reminding the church what Christ did for them. It's interesting. Mark this as we go through this series. 
Paul is going to deal with this first problem, the very first problem, the division in Corinth, and he's going to say, here's the cure, it was Christ. Christ is not divided. Christ died for you, not Paul. You were baptized into Christ. The word of the gospel, the preaching of Christ crucified came to you. That's what united you. That's what brought you together. That's what divided you over against the unbelieving world. And that's the solution, remembering that. When I look at churches that are divided, beloved, when I look at churches that are divided, I instantaneously think one thing now. I think they are not thinking about Jesus Christ crucified. Doesn't matter if they give lip service to it. Doesn't matter how much they talk about. Decades go on. Churches bicker, argue, fight. Fundamentally, Paul says it's because they've forgotten what happened in Christ crucified at Calvary when the Son of God hung as a sacrifice for sins in my place condemned he stood hands and feet nailed to the tree under the wrath of God bearing down under the load that we deserve for all eternity and when you forget that you have pride and you have division. And Paul applies that. Now, when we go through the rest of this book it'll be interesting to see how he'll very uniquely apply the gospel in unique ways to every other error in this book. I love... um, in the account of the Passover, the institution of the Passover, that um, all those details pointing forward to Christ, and there's this one little detail where God says through Moses to the Israelites that there should be a lamb for the house. There should be a lamb for the house. And then he says, if the house is too small for the lamb, he should share it, which is, ought to strike you as humorous. I mean, a lamb is not a whole lot of food, If the house is too small, he should share it, which means there's plenty of lamb to go around. You might expect him to say, if the house is too big, you go get another lamb. But he says, if the house is too small, you should bring your neighbor in, bring strangers in, and you should partake together. And the point of that is that there's plenty of Christ. Christ is infinite. There's enough Christ for everything. There's enough Christ for every problem. Christ is undivided. The cross keeps working. The cross keeps working. Listen, if the cross is not at work in your life, That is a scary thing because the cross keeps working and keeps working and keeps working until in glory. Where are we going to see our unity manifest most fully? In glory, when a people from every tongue, tribe, nation, and language, music, style, ethnicity, culture are going to be around the throne and around the Lamb and they're going to be crying out, you are worthy for you were slain. The cross, you were slain. And you have redeemed us to God from your blood out of every tongue, tribe, nation, and language, and you have made us kings and priests to our God. You are worthy, for you were slain. The unity in heaven is going to be that unity that we long for. No more divisions. I like to think that Ralph and uh, Ralph Erskine and James Scott are going to reunite in heaven. As sad as it was, that awful division between that great theologian and his son-in-law That in glory, because of the work of Jesus, there will be union again, there will be unity again, there will be harmony again. Now, let me bring this to bear practically on just several levels quickly. First, there may come a day when there will be lots of disunity in this church. I think generally that's going to happen from somebody not liking somebody, thinking they're beneath them, that's pride maybe over music preferences or something else. That's pride, oftentimes. And when that happens, and if that happens, you as a body need to remember this passage and need to remember at the root of all of our pride, at the root of all of our problems is pride, 
and that God calls us and that schisms can be healed. Don't miss that. Oftentimes we look at schism in churches and we say, that's beyond repair. Well, Paul didn't think the Corinthians were beyond repair. He called them to seek out restoration in that division and that schism. And you, beloved, will play a part in that. Number two, to remember our own personal place in all of this. Think if every Christian in every church was saying, how am I reflecting my love for the brethren? How am I reflecting my union that I have in them, serving them, loving them, caring for them, praying for them, not speaking ill of them, not speaking down? How quickly we just want to, how quickly we want to speak ill of somebody we don't like in the body. Brothers and sisters, that person is united to Jesus, whether you think they are or not. They're united to Jesus, and we are to see them as that, and we are to love them because we love Christ. And we are to take personally and look within and say, is there pride in my life? Am I, am I asserting myself in some way that could cause harmful division in the church of Jesus? And then thirdly, to remember, the cure for disunity is the gospel. You know, it's impossible. It is impossible when you are by faith looking at the crucified and risen Son of God, it is impossible that you would want disunity, that you would foster disunity, that you would participate in that. I want to say also, just as a, an aside, you know, this is why we pray for other churches that even have some doctrinal differences on certain levels. This is not saying that we don't care about the gospel, that we don't care again. I mean, if somebody's preaching another gospel, another Jesus, Paul said, let him be accursed. But within evangelical Protestantism, we ought to be loving brothers and sisters and churches that don't agree on every point with us. Those that hold forth Christ as a substitutionary sacrifice for sins by faith alone, in Christ alone for righteousness, we ought to be praying for them and laboring with them and seeking unity with them. And you know what? If other churches don't want to participate together with us, we ought not be put off by that. We ought not be territorial. We ought to press forward to pray for and long to see God's work in those fellowships because we belong to a universal church. We belong to a universal church. We're part of something bigger and all believers are united to Jesus Christ. And he purchased all of them with his blood. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to this church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that though we are so exceedingly blessed not to have division in this fellowship and, and that we have seen your grace and your kindness to us, Lord, at New Covenant, and that we have had years of harmony, yet we know that sin oftentimes is crouching at the door and its desires for us and that we are not immune, Father. So we pray that you would protect this church, that you would take the things that are said this morning and that you would help the people to hold them to keep them, to cherish them, to act on them. And above all things, that we would keep you, Lord Jesus, as center in our church, that the gospel would be centered, that you and your saving work would always find the central place in our minds and in our hearts, and that we might love our brethren who are united to you. Father, we pray for churches that are gospel-centered churches even now that are divided. We remember them this morning. We pray for your mercy and your kindness that there would be unity and there would be restoration and healing through the gospel. 
Lord Jesus, we pray that you would bless your church around the world, that you would bless your ministers, and that you would build that church on the foundation of Jesus Christ crucified. We pray these things in his name. Amen.